Welcome to the second part of an interview with author Andrew Van Way that I did back in August of 2022. This is the Yoko Podcast, and my name is Greg Lewis. In part one, we talked about Andrew's beginnings and explored a little of what new teachers might want to consider as they begin teaching English in Korea. We concluded with a little of what it is to be a writer from Andrew's perspective. At the time of this recording, Andrew and Marissa's beloved English sheepdog, Denny, was very much a part of their lives. Sadly, Denny left this world on September 15th, leaving what Andrew calls a sheepdog-sized hole in our hearts, one that feels infinitely raw. However, despite their profound grief and feelings of loss, Andrew says they know that in time the hole will be filled with all the memories they shared with Denny, and in Andrew's words, those memories will grow into a forest of joy. This episode of the Yoko podcast is dedicated to the memory of Denny. In part two of my interview with Andrew Van Way, we jump right into serious gaming and link that to storytelling and writing and conclude with a plug for independent publishing. All good stuff that I'm sure you will enjoy. So settle in for part two of my interview with Andrew Van Way. Serious gaming is essentially taking the systems of gaming and storytelling and using them in the classroom to achieve certain goals. So it could be as simple as role-playing a situation. It could be as complicated as using a game as a simulation for real-life events. For example, say that there was a fire and you needed to figure out how to put out the fire with limited resources. You could get people to sit down and board game that. You could sit, get people to work within the parameters of some sort of system that you design. So often there's an element of chance in serious gaming, like you would roll dice, say a one through six-sided dice. Dungeons and Dragons comes into play because I've been playing D&D since I was in fourth grade on and off. And I've followed, you know, the different evolutions of Dungeons and Dragons over the years. Um, I ran a few games while I was in South Korea as a dungeon master. And of course, there's a lot of storytelling involved in that because Dungeons and Dragons is essentially a collaborative form of storytelling. You have a story you want to tell, but there's four or five other people that want to do something completely different you might want to go slay the dragon and get the treasure. Your buddy to your right wants to open an inn or a brothel. Your buddy to your left decides that he wants to steal your buddy to your right's a sack of gold or something like that. So you have to end out corralling a bunch of people together and making a story that they want to get involved with. So that's the D&D side of it. Serious gaming is a way to use that in the classroom. Um, and it could be a classroom like, you know, third graders. It could be a classroom of firemen who are trying to anticipate events that they could never train for events that they had never anticipated in a fire drill. A lot of times it's used for companies to brainstorm ideas or reactions. Um, in college, in the university setting, I used it in my freshman English classroom for my students to essentially play games with each other, but also analyze the games at a meta level, what went right, what went wrong, how they could improve 
what the experiences were. So in my classroom, what my students did is they would take about two weeks where they would play a game of Dungeons and Dragons with each other. One person would be the dungeon master and come up with the story. The other four students would be the players. And within four weeks, you're only given about, in the classroom, that would be about eight hours of classroom time to really go through that game. So you're not going to be telling some sort of Lord of the Rings story. You're going to just be telling a really quick little story. So the dungeon master has to create the campaign. The players have to come up with the characters. And then after two weeks, they switch off. Another player takes over. And then the dungeon master becomes a player. They rotate throughout that over the semester. While they're doing this, they're also writing essays on their characters. They're writing essays on Dungeons and Dragons. They're writing essays on other games that are related to Dungeons and Dragons. And they can go off in other directions too. So I had a lot of students who were not interested in Dungeons and Dragons, but they were interested in medieval weapons. So they write an essay about forging a halberd or about the benefit of Japanese steel. And if you can tell someone if you can entertain someone for five pages of an essay on the benefits of Japanese steel, you've done something pretty well. So a lot of times, yeah, kudos to, to them to doing that. I had a lot of students who were looking at the history of formations and battlefields. And again, kind of a dry topic, but they were able to use some of the skills that they learned as being a dungeon master and also a player to compose an entertaining and interesting story that teaches you while also is fun to read. You're, you're, I, I guess I was thinking about it being in, a, in the digital realm, but you're talking about mm -hmm. like board game. You can do board games. You can do tabletop games. We never had a chance, unfortunately, to explore the digital realm, but there's absolutely a lot of room for this. Um, one of my colleagues that I went to a conference with does um, World of Warcraft in her class. So she uses a class that meets entirely online, and this was perfect for the pandemic. Sure. They would all get headsets, and they would all get microphones, and they would refer to each other as their in-game World of Warcraft characters' names. They would write essays about video games. They would write essays about the pros and the cons of gaming, and they would talk about their own experience playing this game. What are some toxic traits that they saw other players doing? What are some ways that this game might not be positive for you know, people of different body shapes, for example. One of the things that they were always pointing out is that the men get armor with these huge shoulders and everything, but the women are basically given these, you know, steel bikinis. And they would analyze that in their essays. Like, who are the people that are writing these games? Who are the ones that are designing this armor? So there's plenty of ways that you can use serious gaming to bring about some really interesting topics to discuss in class and to write about. Yeah, absolutely. I think serious gaming is something that's overlooked a lot. I think that a lot of instructors don't really understand it. It's a very new field as well. So when I was studying it in my graduate courses, I was the only one in my entire department who'd really taken a look at it for more than a few seconds. And there was a lot of resistance too, um, not necessarily from the older types, but just a lot of people who the moment you said, we're going to be playing a game in this classroom, they saw that, you know, oh, they're not going to be learning. That's what I'm really hearing. Right. But then, you know, you notice that the students are writing 12-page essays on Japanese steel versus the standard five-page essay because these kids are really interested in Japanese steel, for example. 
And this is a writing course in college in the States, right? Yes. In the States, most of most students end up taking what they call first year composition, FYC. So they would take, you know, their freshman fall, they would take at my university it was called English 1A, and then there was English 1B. Sometimes it's English 101 and English 102 or whatnot. But they generally have the same focus, which is, you know, you're writing some essays on argument, you're looking at rhetoric, you're looking at persuasion, you're writing essays to inform, you're trying to break the students out of the standard three paragraph or five paragraph essay, you know, introduction, point one, point two, point three, conclusion. So you're doing a lot of analyzing of New York Times articles or great articles that you read on the web. Or whatnot. So, yeah. So, how well do you see that translating into an English classroom, like taking it back into Korea? Oh, I think, yeah, I think that there's a lot of opportunity. Korea is a country that's incredibly digitally connected. Gaming is esports are enormous in Korea. And when we were out there, we would go to esports competitions all the time. I wrote an essay on it that won an award about our experience going to the League of Legends 2013 World Championship. So I think Koreans naturally get gaming. You see people gaming on the subway and they're all ages. I think that sometimes that that gets beaten out of them in the classroom because it's thought to be something that can't be brought into the classroom, which is mm -hmm. completely fallacious. It can absolutely be brought into the classroom. You just have to have the support system with the administrators there and the people who will back you up um, when you say that, hey, we're going to play League of Legends in this classroom. And then we're going to write essays about League of Legends, and they can be essays about why it's great, why it's terrible, why it's fun, what this character is, why these three characters are better than these three characters. But really, the skills that they're learning is that you could replace League of Legends with anything else. Why Samsung is better than Kia, why Hyundai is better than this. Um, so there's a lot of crossover that students learn that they can transfer from one subject to the next. I think it would absolutely be a great thing to have in an ESL classroom. Wow, I love the way your head works. <laughs> I mean, you're, uh, you, you've got your finger in a lot of pies. I mean, uh, you're conscious, consciously in, in many different areas of interest. And I guess that, I mean, as a writer, I suppose that is sort of part and parcel of the gig. But uh, Yeah, you definitely have to stay interested in a lot of different things. I think yeah. that curiosity is absolutely mandatory for that. And it keeps... Here, here my brain young. And I think that it also keeps my books, I hope, interesting enough so that, you know, you want to read and figure out what's going on there. Because if you're not curious about what's going to happen a chapter, a couple chapters away, there's no reason, no way that you would keep going through the book. Well, uh, now I'm just going to take that nice little segue that you offered up there and ask whether there are, what is, what is in the pipeline? Is there anything you can share with the upcoming uh, novels? So I've got three books coming out in 2022. The first one is the second book in my Clearwater trilogy. That's called Refraction. So if yeah. you like the X-Files or Red Dragon, the Hannibal Lecter series, it's sort of a combination of both. And then after that, I've got an old school horror novel called Head Like a Hole. It's a body horror novel set in the mid 90s. That's uh, you can tell I'm a Nine Inch Nails fan because <laughs> the title. So that's a, a a dark body horror novel. And then after that, I've got a third novel that should be coming out at the end of December. And I'm going to just keep the title of that a little close to my chest at the moment. And then 2023 is going to be another another year of three books at least. So wow. the foreseeable future will be about three books a year, probably. Well, I'm really excited for you. 
Thank uh, you. Thank uh, you. I, I, I'm just so delighted to have uh, met you at, uh, you know, in the English classroom in Korea and uh, and to sort of see you, seeing you work, first of all, uh, uh, you know, with, with students was one thing, but secondly, uh, your planning and you were frustrated. I remember you were frustrated about yeah. the, the answers, your response you were getting back, but it, you, know, you stuck with it and it clicked and it, I mean, you you went and followed that dream and uh, it's it's very impressive you should be very very proud of what well, you Well thank doing. you. It it was a long road and I think the road started back in about 2014 when I decided that I did want to go to graduate school in the United States and there was a lot of exploring 2014 2015 and, and you were a huge part of that. Um a lot of the people in the faculty room of I think it was room 303 at Gachon University yeah. had their degrees from graduate schools and I wanted to talk and and pick their brains about it about the pros and the cons. There were a lot of people with an MA in English lit and not so many people with an MFA, which was what I was going for. And I, it was a, it was a fun time. It was definitely interesting to look back on that time and to kind of see the change that had sort of happened in my career. I don't think I would have taken the leap of faith into going full-time as an author had I not had the sort of experience of living abroad and being on your back foot and having to be adaptable. And then going through graduate school, that was really helpful as well. I think that as expatriates, sometimes we do tend to look around and see ourselves surrounded by a bunch of other expatriates. And we sort of forget that we're doing something that's pretty extraordinary, that when you get back home, if you do return home, and you're going to be one of very few other people that has lived abroad for an extended amount of time. Maybe there's a family down the street whose husband, you know, spent nine months in Dubai, or maybe there's someone who studied for a year in France, but it's very few and far between that you'll meet someone that lived abroad for a year or several years in a culture that's very different from Canada, the United States, Western Europe, or whatnot. So we tend to forget that we are really kind of the unicorns and that Sometimes it might feel like your career is maybe stagnating, but you're developing a lot of incredible skills that do transfer over. Um, both myself and my wife have gotten jobs since we've gotten back that have been directly related to our time living abroad. She has done a lot of work with um, with people who English language isn't necessarily their first language. She's done a lot of instruction. And then, you know, with me, with my students, when I was in graduate school, one of the reasons I got my teaching appointment was because I had ESL experience. And I'm in a part of the country where a lot of people, English is not their first language. And they wanted someone who could empathize with a student who was maybe a first generation college student who his parents speak a second language at home and they're struggling with the English classroom. So I had a little bit more empathy than I would say the average English teacher might with an English 1A class in their freshman freshman group. The, the one other member of the family that we'd uh, be terribly remiss to ignore would be uh, Danny. Yes. Yeah, my, my old English sheepdog that we found in Korea that is now an American citizen. So she's traveled quite a bit. She's she's doing well. She's up there in years. She's slower, but she's just having a great time out here in California. No problem with her getting her green card? Nope, none whatsoever. She didn't like the flight back over. She, apparently she barked the entire way. So when we got off the plane, my wife traced her down from her loud sheepdog barks, which could be heard about a quarter of a mile away at the cargo hold at the airport. Oh, wow. But 
once they were reunited, the barking stopped. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Great story. Listen, is there anything that uh, I haven't asked you that that I should have asked you be- before we wrap this up? Nothing that I can think of. I would just say if anyone is considering um, going into independent publishing, which is what I consider myself in, it's an absolutely perfect time to do it. We're at a sort of crossroads in the publishing industry right now. Uh, traditional publishing, I don't want to say it's dying, but it's definitely changing a lot. There's a lot of room for growth. There's a lot of what are called mid-list authors. Those are authors you may have never heard of, mm-hmm. but are making a living, and some of them are making quite a killing by publishing a couple books within a genre that they like. Um, it's probably not the best industry for literary fiction or for poets, um, but if you do write uh, general fiction, if you do write nonfiction, if you do write um, travel, memoir, narrative, things like that, definitely look up uh, independent um, independent writers. There are quite a lot of them out there that are doing pretty well and, and making a living and enjoying it, being their own bosses. Well, very good. Well, I'm going to look that up myself. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Andrew, for uh, taking the time and, and doing this interview. I appreciate it. I appreciate it too, Greg. This was a lot of fun. The Yoko Podcast is 100% organic and passionately presented courtesy of the Youngin Gyeonggi-do chapter of Kotesal, a chapter masterfully managed by Chapter President James Rush III, Chapter Secretary Adele Lee, and Chapter Treasurer David Kim, and immediate past President Stuart Gray. This podcast and all chapter events workshops, presentations, and meetings are made possible only with the active participation of voting members like you. Please consider being a part of an important nonprofit organization by taking on an active role in your local Cotisol chapter. My name is Greg Lewis, and you have been listening to the Yoko Podcast. Join us, won't you?